0: Book 10, Part 1 of History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth Translated by Aaron Thompson and J. A. Giles This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 Lucius Tiberius calls together the Eastern Kings against the Britons Lucius Tiberius, on receiving this answer, by order of the senate published a decree for the eastern kings to come with their forces and assist in the conquest of Britain. In obedience to which there came in a very short time Epistrophius, King of the Grecians, Mustanzar, King of the Africans, Aliphantinum, King of Spain, Hurtatius, King of the Parthians, Bocchus, of the Medes. Sertorius, of Libya. Teusa, king of Phrygia. Circes, king of the Iturians, Pandrasus, king of Egypt. Mekypsa, king of Babylon. Polytetes, duke of Bithynia. Teusa, duke of Phrygia. Evander, of Syria. Aethion, of Boeotia. Hippolytus of Crete, with the generals and nobility under them. Of the senatorian order also came Lucius Catullus, Marius Lepidus, Caius Metellus Cotta, Quintus Milvius Catullus, Quintus Carutius, and as many others as made up the number of 40,160. Chapter 2 Arthur commits to his nephew Mordred the Government of Britain. His Dream at Hamos Port After the necessary dispositions were made, upon the calends of August they began their march towards Britain, which, when Arthur had intelligence of, he committed the government of the kingdom to his nephew Mordred and Queen Ganhumara, and marched with his army to Hamo's port, where the wind stood fair for him. But while he, surrounded with all his numerous fleet, was sailing joyfully with a brisk gale, it happened that about midnight he fell into a very sound sleep, and in a dream saw a bear flying in the air, at the noise of which all the shores trembled. Also a terrible dragon, flying from the west, which enlightened the country with the brightness of its eyes. When these two met, they began a dreadful fight. But the dragon, with its fiery breath, burned the bear, which often assaulted him, and threw him down scorched to the ground. Arthur, upon this awaking, related his dream to those that attended about him, who took it upon them to interpret it, and told him that the dragon signified himself, but the bear some giant that should encounter with him, and that the fight portended the duel that would be between them, and the dragon's victory the same that would happen to himself. But Arthur conjectured it portended something else and that the vision was applicable to himself and the emperor. As soon as the morning after this night's sail appeared, they found themselves arrived at the mouth of the river Barber. and there they pitched their tents to wait the arrival of the kings of the islands and the generals of the other provinces. Chapter 3 Arthur kills a Spanish giant who had stolen away Helena, the niece of Hurl. In the meantime, Arthur had news brought him that a giant of monstrous size was come from the shores of Spain and had forcibly taken away Helena, the niece of Duke Hurl, from her guard and fled with her to the top of that which is now called Michael's Mount, and that the soldiers of the country who pursued him were able to do nothing against him. For whether they attacked him by sea or land, he either overturned their ships with vast rocks, or killed them with several sorts of darts, besides many of them that he took and devoured half alive. The next night, therefore, at the second hour, Arthur, taking along with him Caius the sewer and for the butler, went out privately from the camp and hastened towards the mountain. For being a man of undaunted courage, he did not care to lead his army against such monsters, both because he could in this manner animate his men by his own example and also because he was alone sufficient to deal with them. As soon as they came near the mountain, they saw a fire burning upon the top of it and another on a lesser mountain, that was not far from it. And being in doubt upon which of them the giant dwelt, they sent away Bedver, to know the certainty of the matter. So he, finding a boat, sailed over in it, first to the lesser mountain, to which he could in no other way have access, because it was situated in the sea. When he had begun to climb up to the top of it, he was at first frightened with a dismal howling cry of a woman from above and imagined the monster to be there. But quickly rousing up his courage, he drew his sword and having reached the top found nothing but the fire which he had before seen at a distance he discovered also a grave newly made and an old woman weeping and howling by it who at the sight of him instantly cried out in words interrupted with sighs oh unhappy man what misfortune brings you to this place oh the inexpressible torture of death that you must
1: suffer i pity you i pity you because the detestable monster "'will this night destroy the flower of your youth, "'for that most wicked and odious giant "'who brought the duke's niece, "'whom I have just now buried here, "'and me, her nurse, along with her, "'into this mountain, will come "'and immediately murder you "'in a most cruel manner. "'Oh, deplorable fate!' this most illustrious princess, sinking under the fear her tender heart conceived, while the foul monster would have embraced her, fainted away, and expired. And when he could not satiate his brutish lust upon her, her, who was the very soul, joy, and happiness of my life, being enraged at the disappointment of his bestial desire— he forcibly committed a rape upon me, who, let God and my old age witness, abhorred his embraces. Fly, dear sir, fly, for fear he may come, as he usually does, to lie with me, and finding you here, most barbarously
0: butcher you. Bedford moved at what she said, as much as it is possible for human nature to be, endeavoured with kind words to assuage her grief, and to comfort her with the promise of speedy help, and then returned back to Arthur, and gave him an account of what he had met with. Arthur very much lamented the damsel's sad fate, and ordered his companions to leave him to deal with him alone, unless there was an absolute necessity, and then they were to come in boldly to his assistance. From hence, they went directly to the next mountain, leaving their horses with their armour-bearers, and ascended to the top, Arthur leading the way. The deformed savage was then by the fire, with his face besmeared with the clotted blood of swine, Part of which he had already devoured, and was roasting the remainder upon spits by the fire. But at the sight of them, whose appearance was a surprise to him, he hastened to his club, which two strong men could hardly lift from the ground. Upon this, the king drew his sword, and, guarding himself with his shield, ran with all his speed to prevent his getting it. But the other, who was not ignorant of his design, had by this time snatched it up and gave the king such a terrible blow upon his shield that he made the shores ring with the noise and perfectly stunned the king's ears with it. Arthur, fired with rage at this, lifted up his sword and gave him a wound in the forehead, which was not indeed mortal, but yet such as made the blood gush out over his face and eyes and so blinded him for he had partly warded off the stroke from his forehead with his club, and prevented it being fatal. However, his loss of sight, by reason of the blood flowing over his eyes, made him exert himself with an ever greater fury, and like an enraged boar, against a hunting spear, so did he rush in against Arthur's sword, and grasping him about the waist, forced him down upon his knees. But Arthur nothing daunted, slipped out of his hands and so bestirred himself with his sword that he gave the giant no respite till he had struck it up to the very back through his skull. At this the hideous monster raised a dreadful roar and, like an oak torn up from the roots by the winds, so did he make the ground resound with his fall. Arthur, bursting out into a fit of laughter at the sight, commanded Bedver to cut off his head and give it to one of the armour-bearers, who was to carry it to the camp and there expose it to public view, but with orders for the spectators of this combat to keep silence. He told them he had found none of so great strength since he had killed the giant Rithco, who had challenged him to fight upon the mountain Aravius. This giant had made himself furs from the beards of kings he had killed, and had sent word to Arthur carefully to flee off his beard and send it to him, and then, out of respect to his preeminence over other kings, his beard should have the honour of the principal place. But if he refused to do it he challenged him to a duel with this offer, that the conqueror should have the furs, and also the beard of the vanquished, for a trophy of his victory. In this conflict, therefore, Arthur proved victorious, and took the beard and spoils of the giant, and, as he said before, had met with none that could be compared to him for strength till his last engagement. After this victory, they returned at the second watch of the night to the camp, with the head, to see which there was a great concourse of people, all extolling this wonderful exploit of Arthur, by which he had freed the country from a most destructive and voracious monster. But Hurle, in great grief for the loss of his niece, commanded a mausoleum to be built over her body, in the mountain where she was buried, which... Taking the damsel's name is called Helena's tomb to this day. Chapter 4 Arthur's ambassadors to Lucius Tiberius deliver Petrius Cotter, whom they took prisoner, to Arthur. As soon as all the forces were arrived, which Arthur expected, he marched from thence to Augusta dunum Where he supposed the general was. But when he came to the river Alba he had intelligence brought him of his having encamped not far off and that he was come with so vast an army that he would not be able to withstand it. However this did not deter him from pursuing his enterprise but he pitched his camp upon the bank of the river to facilitate the bringing up of his forces and to secure his retreat, if there should be occasion, and sent Bozo, the consul of Oxford, and Guirinus Carnatensis with his nephew walgan to Lucius Tiberius, requiring him either to retire from the coasts of Gaul, or come the next day, that they might try their right to that country with their swords." The retinue of young courtiers that attended Walgan, highly rejoicing at this opportunity, were urgent with him to find some occasion for a quarrel in the commander's camp, that so they might engage the Romans. Accordingly, they went to Lucius, and commanded him to retire out of Gaul, or hazard a battle the next day. But while he was answering them that he was not come to retire, but to govern the country. There was present Caius Quintilianus, his nephew, who said that the Britons were better at boasting and threatening than they were at fighting. Wolgan immediately took fire at this and ran upon him with his drawn sword, wherewith he cut off his head and then retreated speedily with his companions to their horses. The Romans both horse and foot, pursued to revenge the loss of their countrymen upon the ambassadors who fled with great precipitation. But Guerinus Carnotensis, just as one of them was come up to him, rallied on a sudden and with his lance struck at once through his armour and the very middle of his body and laid him prostrate on the ground. The sight of this noble exploit raised the emulation of Bozo of Oxford, who, wheeling about with his horse, struck his lance into the throat of the first man he met with, and dismounted him, mortally wounded. In the meantime, Marcellus Mutius, with great eagerness to prevent Quintilian's death, was just upon the back of Walgan and laid hold of him, which the other quickly obliged him to quit, by cleaving both his helmet and head, To the breast with his sword. He also bade him, when he arrived at the infernal regions, tell the man he had killed in the camp that in this manner the Britons showed their boasting and threatening. Then, having reassembled his men, he encouraged them to dispatch every one his pursuer in the same manner as he had done, which accordingly they did not fail to accomplish. Notwithstanding, the Romans continued their pursuit with lances and swords, wherewith they annoyed the others, though without slaughter or taking any prisoners. But as they came near a certain wood, a party of six thousand Britons, who, seeing the flight of the consuls, had hid themselves to be in readiness for their assistance, sallied forth, and putting spurs to their horses, rent the air with their loud shouts, and being well fenced with their shields, assaulted the Romans suddenly and forced them to fly. And now it was the Britons' turn to pursue, which they did with better success, for they dismounted, killed, or took several of the enemy. Petraeus, the senator, upon this news, hastened to the assistance of his countrymen, with ten thousand men, and compelled the Britons to retreat to the wood from whence they had sallied forth, though not without loss of his own men. For the Britons, being well acquainted with the ground, in their flight killed a great number of their pursuers. The Britons thus giving ground, Hyder, with another reinforcement of five thousand men, advanced with speed to sustain them, so that again they faced those upon whom they had turned their backs, and renewed the assault with great vigour. The Romans also stood their ground, and continued the fight with various success. The great fault of the Britons was that though they had been very eager to begin the fight, yet when begun they were less careful of the hazard they ran, whereas the Romans were under better discipline, and had the advantage of a prudent commander. Petraeus Cotter to tell them where to advance and where to give ground and by these means did great injury to the enemy. When Bozo observed this he drew off from the rest a large party of those whom he knew to be the stoutest men and spoke to them after this manner. Since we have begun this fight without Arthur's knowledge We must take care that we be not defeated in the enterprise for if we should we shall both very much endanger our men and incur the king's high displeasure rouse up your courage and follow me through the roman squadrons that with the favor of good fortune we may either kill or take betrayers prisoner with this they put spurs to their horses and piercing through the enemy's thickest ranks, reached the place where Petreus was giving his commands. Bozo hastily ran in upon him, and grasping him about the neck, fell with him to the ground as he had intended. The Romans hereupon ran to his delivery, as did the Britons to Bozo's assistance, which occasioned on both sides great slaughter, noise and confusion while one party strove to rescue their leader and the other to keep him prisoner. So that this proved the sharpest part of the whole fight and wherein their spears, swords and arrows had the fullest employment. At length the Britons, joining in a close body and sustaining patiently the assaults of the Romans, retired to the main body of their army with Petraeus which they had no sooner done than they again attacked them, being now deprived of their leader very much weakened, dispirited, and just beginning to flee. They therefore eagerly pursued, beat down, and killed several of them, and as soon as they had plundered them, pursued the rest. But they took the greatest number of them prisoners, being desirous to present them to the king. When they had, at last, sufficiently harassed them they returned with their plunder and prisoners to the camp where they gave an account of what had happened and presented Petraeus Cotter with the other prisoners before Arthur with great joy for the victory. Arthur congratulated them upon it and promised them advancement to greater honours for behaving themselves so gallantly when he was absent from them. Then he gave his command to some of the men to conduct the prisoners the next day to Paris and deliver them to be kept in custody there till further orders. The party that were to undertake this charge he ordered to be conducted by Cador, Bedver and the two councils Borellus and Richerius, with their servants they should be out of all fear of disturbance from the Romans. Chapter 5 The Romans attack the Britons with a very great force, but are put to flight by them. But the Romans, happening to get intelligence of their design, at the command of their general chose out 15,000 men, who that night were to get before the others in their march. And rescue their fellow soldiers out of their hands. They were to be commanded by Voltaeus Catellus and Quintus Carutius, senators, as also Evander, king of Syria and Sertorius, king of Libya. Accordingly they began their march that very night and possessed themselves of a place convenient for lying an ambuscade, through which they supposed the others would pass. In the morning the Britons set forward along the same road with their prisoners and were now approaching the place in perfect ignorance of the cunning stratagem of the enemy. No sooner had they entered it than the Romans, to their great surprise, sprang forth and fell furiously upon them. Notwithstanding, the Britons, at length recovering from their consternation, assembled together And prepared for a bold opposition by appointing a party to guard the prisoners and drawing out the rest in order of battle against the enemy. Richerius and Bedfer had the command of the party that was set over the prisoners but Cador Duke of Cornwall and Borellus headed the others. But all the Romans had made their sally without being placed in any order and cared not to form themselves, that they might lose no time in the slaughter of the Britons whom they saw busied in marshalling their troops and preparing only for their defence. By this conduct the Britons were extremely weakened and would have shamefully lost their prisoners had not good fortune rendered them assistance. For Guitard, commander of the Pictavians, happened to get information of the design stratagem and was come up with 3,000 men, by the help of which they at last got the advantage and paid back the slaughter upon their insolent assailants. Nevertheless, the loss which they sustained at the beginning of this action was very considerable. For they lost Borellus, the famous consul of the Kenamani, in an encounter with Evander, king of Syria, who struck his lance into his throat. Besides four noblemen, viz. Herald Gastesperius, Mauritius Cadocanensis, Aliduc of Tintagel, and Hyder his son, than whom braver men were hardly to be found. But yet neither did this loss dispirit the Britons, but rather made them more resolute to keep the prisoners and kill the enemy. The Romans, now finding themselves unable to maintain the fight any longer, suddenly quitted the field and made towards their camp, but were pursued with slaughter by the Britons, who also took many of them and allowed them no respite till they had killed Voltaeus Catellus and Evander, king of Syria, and wholly dispersed the rest. After which they sent away their former prisoners to Paris. Whither they were to conduct them, and returned back with those newly taken to the king, to whom they gave great hopes of a complete conquest of their enemies, since very few of the great number that came against them had met with any success. End of Book Ten, Part One